0: I'm JR, and rather than the usual crowd, tonight I have a guest. Hello, Mr. Guest. Would you like to tell the listeners who you are?
1: Hello, I'm Jonathan Morris, the um, seasoned Doctor Who writer.
0: A Doctor Who writer of all sorts of weird and wonderful things.
1: Yeah, I've done uh, books, comic strips, um, audios, um, and other things, yes, it's... Um, all sorts of stuff.
0: <laughs> but the funny thing is, you're not from a million miles away from the stretch of woods where I'm recording this podcast from right now. I don't know if you realise this, I'm in Exeter, which is just down the road from...
1: Oh, I'm from uh, Taunton, sort of, ah, uh, round there, near a village called Bishop's Lidiaud. Which is um, one end of the minehead railway line, and I'm boring myself <laughs> by talking about it. No, um, it's
0: not boring at all. Well, um, one end of the minehead. This sounds like classic Doctor Who stuff, to be honest. Well, that's
1: one of the things. I mean, I had this argument with someone online. It was probably John Blum years ago, I, um, who was saying um, the, the unit era of Doctor Who is utterly implausible that you have these little English villages uh, in the middle of nowhere where there's an army base, you know, right next to them and stuff like that. But I grew up there. It was exactly like that.
0: <laughs> quite, absolutely. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I've I've been around places like that as well myself. Do you remember then going right back to when you were a child, presumably still in this village, when you first got into Doctor Who? Uh
1: well, it was a sort of uh, these things come in stages because used um, to, to begin with, obviously Doctor is just a television programme. Yeah. And so I was, you can sort of date me by the fact that I was about four years old, old watching probably the first story is horror fang rock yes which is weird thing for a four-year-old watch um and then the invisible enemy i have a very vivid memory of um watching it and going i've seen this one before which means i must have seen the repeat oh yeah the following summer and gone oh i know this one this is the one where lilia is attacked by giant beach balls and they go inside the doctor's mind and the giant prawn comes up in the left at the end of part three. And all these you, wonderful things.
0: It's, yes, wonderful things. I tell you what, the Invisible Enemy's got a terrible reputation, but if you were the right age when you first saw it, it was wonderful. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the thing
1: when you're a kid, I think, I mean, it takes until about you're 14, I think, when you start realising or start deciding that some things aren't very good. Yeah. Or aren't as good as they used to be. I think up until then, you're sort of of the wind going, well, this is all new it's Doctor Who, you know, it's got the Doctor Who music at the beginning, it's got the title sequence, it's got Doctor Who in it, it's a police box, it's good, you know, it's exciting good, it's because it's Doctor Who, because you haven't started marking things out of ten, you know, (laughs) you haven't haven't started approaching it with a sort of, the critical mindset, I think you only sort of develop as you become a sort of a sickening adolescent (laughs) and then you spend the rest of your life trying to lose that (laughs)
0: <laughs> do you remember what the first sort of story was then because I'm, I'm a little bit older than you so my earliest memories are the Pertwee's and I think it was not long after The Invisible Enemy when I started noticing you know, oh that's a set that's not actually real, it's a set and you know, the costumes and things do you remember the first the first time you sort of looked at the television screen and thought no, there's something not quite right here
1: I think um, it would probably be around um the end of the colin baker's time trial of a time lord um just because the special effects in the uh, vervoid story are so are not as good as they could be as they have been you know the previous year so it's when things aren't as good as Mm. they, they were um you know in the past that's odd um and i think with um Sylvester McCoy's first year, I think the hormones had kicked in. Yeah. <laughs> and um, things like um, uh, Delton the Men and Dragonfire. I was pretty. You must
0: have had good experiences with the Peter Davison years then. Because for well, yeah. me, being my age. Well, well, at my age, the Peter Davison years were like, oh, dreadful set. Oh, too much lighting going on here. Oh, that monster's a bit shabby.
1: Yeah, there is a sort of an odd thing when where obviously where you watch something on D V D now and Yeah. I remember Terminus as being a very sort of dark and spooky and atmospheric story. And I'm watching it now going <laughs> 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 Was this was there something wrong with my television? I mean the the story I have told before, but you can you can inflict it on you again. Go is on. um I have very poor eyesight and um up until about nineteen eighty I was sort of well about six or seven I think before I started getting glasses. And up until that point, i just sit really close to the television and stare at it. And, um, so when I was watching stuff like, um, The Invisible Enemy, or particularly The Power of Crow*, I thought it was perfectly convincing, <laughs> because my eyesight was terrible. Um, and then I, then I got glasses, and I think, uh, but, but then Doctor Who got better. So I think that's, that was the memo Again, the game. Johnny's wearing glasses now. We have to make City of Death <laughs> so that he oh, can appreciate yes. it.
0: But to be honest, that kind of parallels uh just the general viewers' kind of experience of watching Doctor Who in the 60s on little 8-inch TV screens, and then in the 70s getting rather bigger ones, and then these days getting even bigger ones still.
1: Yeah, I mean It's, it's kind of ridiculous that I've got this sort of I don't know, 38-inch widescreen uh, LED thing, and the first thing I watch on it is The Enemy of the World Part 1, uh, <laughs> just to test it, going obviously the most important thing in this new television is does it show 60s drama to its um, best advantage um,
0: and did it? it, that's the big question it did, it
1: was ridiculous that you could you can see far too much detail um, but I, it's weird, I mean, my old VHS's when I was recording the show in the early 80s our TV reception was really poor um, so everything is kind of not great anyway and there'd be episodes of um, a resurrection of the Daleks and stuff where Blockbusters on ITV would start seeping through the picture Oh, really? So, yes, yeah, so there there was episode. I mean, the Trial of a Time Lord part thirteen. I didn't see properly until about five years ago, because I'd only ever seen a version which was um,
0: weather interference. Uh, well, at least it wasn't Graham Norton.
1: Yeah, well, it, was, it was just it was a, it was the thing. It was a, but it was always a paranoid thing of watching it and. You know, it'd be like Doctor Who would be on at, I don't know, half past five. And at 20 past five, the weather would start to deteriorate in the West Country. Oh. And the Quantox would start sort of interfering. And it was always, you know, Doctor Who was shown at the wrong time.
0: You just know, actually, as soon as something you really want to see comes on, that that is, is Sod's Law, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and that, that happened. Oh, the other, the other one, which I I, I think is extraordinary, is um, Survival Part 2. I saw in black and white on first broadcast which meant the cliffhanger, as far well as I was concerned, is the ace turns round. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going, that's, that's the most rubbish, what is that? That's not even a cliffhanger. That's just, just... And it, obviously not until I watched it properly, going, oh, her eyes have changed colour. No idea. How no many idea years
0: later was it you found out then?
1: Oh, uh, that would have been um, getting v- the the commercial VHS, I think, or the DVD. Wow. Um, but I'd read the book, I wasn't a complete idiot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> fair the- enough. Hey, say out of the blue question, when you watched Snake Dance, were you aware that one of the main actors in it more or less shared your name?
1: Uh, no, because I think that was one of the first things he did. Ah, uh, um, yeah. It's it's one of the sort of banes of my life, you know, having the same name as Not just someone him, in Tally. But yeah. I know, same, the other guy, you know, yeah. it's just oh god. Um, I, I In the past it's been like a nice useful sort of a social filter, really, mm. because um, if someone—if I say someone's my name is someone—and the first thing they say is a crap joke, I go, "Okay, <laughs> this person is actually quite a dull person. I don't need to talk to them anymore."
0: It's oh, um, a good job I didn't start the podcast the way I intended to. Then
1: I know, but I've kind of got over it now. I—I um, <laughs> I, I, I watched their careers with interest. You know, the other Jonathan Morris's yeah. as a, a right-wing priest on Fox News. Oh, really? good uh, called Jonathan, Father Jonathan Morris. And my, my task in life is to make my Google uh, readout come out higher than his.
0: <laughs> it always does when I Google you. Yeah?
1: Well, that's, that's successfully. Really. That's, why, that's why I've written all these things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, speaking of which, going back, the reason, uh, well, sort of going back, one of the reasons you're on is because you weren't able to join us on the Survivors podcast we did a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, that I did with John Dorney and Andrew Smith. mm uh-huh. And one of the things we talked about on that podcast was uh, when everybody writing for it, Matt Fitton as well, of course, I've almost forgot to mention Matt. One of the things we talked about was when they'd first seen Survivors, and I think the only one of the four of you who saw it on first broadcast was Andrew Smith then. Well, he's... He's, he's ancient. Just
1: about the only one old enough, really. I yeah. think... Um... I mean, I might have seen it when I was one years old and, you know, on my mother's knee or something. Mm. Uh, because obviously she's the sort of person who subjects a four-year-old to horrifying rocks. I'm sure <laughs> survivors of one-year-old would be perfectly fine in her head. Um, the, I watched it when it was on UK Gold. I think the first time it had ever been repeated on UK Gold because it was when UK Gold also showed Doomwatch and oh, Secret really? Army and right. really interesting stuff like that. And,
0: I'm guessing this would be in the 1990s then.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, we got Satellite TV back with BSB when it was doing The Doctor Weekend and stuff, so yeah. kind of early adopters, or I was a very persistent pesterer. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it was... And we videoed it straight away, because I think my mum had watched it in the 70s, and obviously I knew the name Terry Nation, and I'd read about it in time screen and fanzines and stuff, so yeah. I knew it was... um what it was about, uh, and generally sort of stuck with it. It's the the I, I've watched the first series three times, I think, but the rest of it, not as much.
0: I've watched the first series, I said this last time, I must have seen that first series about 12 times, I think. I'm one of these obsessive people.
1: Well, is just, <laughs> I think the format there is very strong. I think um, once you have, um, once they've settled down into a farmhouse and... They've got running water and electricity and they're making their own bread and growing their own potatoes. It becomes a different sort of show. It becomes sort of Victorian farm in a way.
0: I really enjoyed that though because yeah. I, I liked the idea I like the sort of Terry Nation style stories but I like the idea of having a base from which to tell those stories. I think it gives the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, it's just difficult in terms of I imagine telling the story that rather than that they're there in one place, and so people have to keep coming to them, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas if they're roaming about the countryside, you can easier, it's much easier to create stories. I mean, I, I draw the the parallel to The Walking Dead because The Walking Dead, uh, in its second series, it did have them kind of settling down in a farmhouse, and everyone was kind of bored, rigid by it, and so they've gone away from that now and have them wandering around again. And I think that's just part of it. I think. um if the world has been destroyed by an apocalypse, you want to keep on seeing new bits of it. You want to see how so different places have been affected.
0: I guess um, so. Yeah. You want to
1: roam about the country. You want, um, um, which I think is one of the things you can do in the old day, in the first day. But it was like, what was it like in the airports and stuff? So it, it can broaden the range a bit more. I think
0: that's true. I suppose it's partly also to do with what you can afford. Yeah, I, I think mean, one of the one of the great things that Terence Dudley did, the reason he used the Grange was because he could get it. And that made a, from a production point of view, it made things a lot simpler, didn't it?
1: Yeah. Well,
0: and that's something. Yeah, I mean, it was, it. it was
1: quite a sort of economic show anyway, I think, because it was just, yeah. we'll go to some fields for a lot of it or, yeah. you know, to the, to, um, to a, a street on the Sunday when it's quiet, when you could do that, when obviously when, where things were really quiet on Sundays, um,
0: not these days.
1: No, it's it's, it's harder. But now you can, nowadays you could CGI it out the, the buses and the cars, so you do it in a different way. Um,
0: and of course, on audio, you don't have to worry about that at all. So you can tell whatever stories you want.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, in um, my episode, uh, the John Banks character goes to the houses of parliament and wanders around inside them because I think it was one of the if the world was wiped out by a. Plague, and you were one of the last people left alive. You kind of want to go. Well, I, wonder, I wonder what it's inside. The, what it's like inside the houses of Parliament, or what it's like inside Number Ten, or in, inside Buckingham Palace. And you'd have a sort of a nose around, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, while you could. Uh, well,
0: what was, so, while we were on Survivors, let's stick with that for a minute, and then we can yeah. go back, back to uh, Doctor Who later. But your story, where well, your episode is episode two of the four. And although they kind of stand-alone stories, really yours and Matt's form a two-parter, and then Andrew's and John's form another two-parter after that, more or less. So did you find yourself quite tied into having to go from where Matt's ended up and get yourself to the correct place for sort of Andrew and John to take over afterwards? How much freedom did you have, in other words?
1: Um, I... Th- I think it was fairly free. I mean, because um, I was involved in the discussions of what we, what we were going to do in the first place. So it wasn't like anything was imposed upon me. Right. Um, But generally, it was quite straightforward. Of At the end of Matt's, these characters were alive and in these places. And at the beginning of the third story, these characters are alive and in these places. So so I could just do what I liked with the characters on that journey, really. Um. You know, there's some who don't make it make it all the way. There's others who join up along the way. And, I mean, I, I was quite keen that the, um, the Louise Jameson character, Jackie Birchall, that I would get to introduce her because I'd come up with this really sort of dramatic way of um, showing someone reacting to the events of the, um, the plague. A uh,
0: very, very effective way, I have to point out, for anybody who's not heard it yet, Uh, I shan't spoil what it is, though.
1: Well, I mean, it's one of the things with the audio, but I think it's also something Survivors did back in the 70s is that you can just really sort of take the drama to its logical extreme, really, I think, because it is an extreme situation. And um, you don't really want to uh, soft soap it or, or, you know, pussyfoot around what it would actually be like, because the whole point of the show. Is how horrible it is, really? Yeah. Because they're survivors, and the more desperate and um, awful the situation, the fact that they survive it makes them stronger powers, characters. It's you know empowers them. Um, so I think that was that's an important thing to do. I mean, I think that's possibly where other shows where it's been a cosy apocalypse. I think is the um yeah the, ter- the term where you know where it's too nice. You know where. Um, Too easy. Well, it's where the world's ended, and, and they've all washed their hair, and they've got perfect makeup, and you know, and they've all clean shaven, and you're going. But you wouldn't be. You'd look terrible.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you'd, you'd be in shock. You'd be suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. All these things would be going on, um, and you'd be ill. You would. You might have survived, you know, the um, the plague, but you'd have all the other things going along with it. So. All those things I wanted to write about, which hadn't really been done that much in the TV show, um, about you know, the, what happens when the um, the sewage starts getting backed up and stuff, that you, you get other infections, um, uh, and that the dogs, when you, if you feed, if you don't feed a dog for a, a week, it basically turns into a wolf, yeah. and it doesn't matter whether it's like a chihuahua or a poodle, it's a wolf, and it will take your arm off. So. There's things like that where, on TV, if they're having, you know, whenever TV, I think Survivors did this, they did have wild dogs, but they didn't look particularly wild whenever they turned No. <laughs> Whereas on Audio, you can sort of do wild dogs better, I think.
0: That's my earliest memory of the TV series, actually. They're wild dogs in series three. And I, for some reason, that really, really stuck in my head. And for years afterwards, I wouldn't go near water if there were dogs around. Because for some reason, they go in the water, actually, to escape the dogs. But for some reason, water and dogs became sort of... You know, the two things become fused together in my head. And I was always afraid of dogs that were near water for years afterwards. And that's the power of survivors. Well,
1: that's why you're here today, to tell the tale, really.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, because I didn't go near them. (laughs) Because you avoided all
1: those dog water-based situations, (laughs) yes.
0: So, coming to Riot Survivors, did they... I mean, it, this was David's idea, David Richardson's idea, wasn't it? I think essentially.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably the logical step once you've done Blake Seven because it's you know the same writer and the same, yeah. same agents, presumably. So, uh, I and, suppose
0: that actually makes it easier to organise the rights if you've already organised the rights for some something else that's in, you know within the same author's estate.
1: Yeah, you've made a sort of point of contact. I mean, yeah. It's, it's generally not too difficult because a lot of um, Doctor Who writers from the 1960s and 70s are all handled by the same agency now. Uh, but um, generally, yes, you just want to No, if they already trust you, if you've already shown that you can you can do good work, they're going to put more stuff your way. so how it yeah, works.
0: Exactly. So did David organise the team? Or once you found out that he was doing it, you know, that Big Finish were going to do this, were, were you guys, and you in particular, obviously – did you ask to come aboard or were you asked
1: um no i think i was at one of the recordings for doctor who or, or you know, probably was, let's, let's assume it was a doctor who and um yeah. david mentioned that they'd got the right to survivors and i go oh i'd really like to write for that you know i'd really that's a really cool show i've got ideas how we could do that i know stories we could tell we, you know it's really exciting what happens when the the coal power stations you know when there's they they would they melt down, would they explode, I mean, all these different things um, and so he was sort of i think he, he knew that I was interested, yeah, um kind of like the opposite of what happened with Blake Seven <laughs> oh, really <laughs> where, where he he mentioned um uh, we got the Vice to Blake Seven, and I said, oh, I'm
0: very sorry for you, yeah <laughs> You're best my of with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can imagine actually i i can't... was, I was, being,
1: I was I like I like Blake seven, I watched the last as a kid, I watched the last two years, and I, I really loved the last year. Uh, when they're going around in Scorpio with Slave and Solin yeah. and stuff. And it's much more colourful and much more um, vid- video-y and sort of CSO-y. And I really love that stuff. You know, I love Orbit and Gold and those brilliant stories and Blake and stuff. Um, it's the earlier episodes where it's all in a power station or caves mm. and where the spaceships are like Captain Pugwash uh, animations.
0: Oh, <laughs> that just, right, that, that, yeah. that just
1: really throws me going... You've got this brilliant model of the the Liberator, but half your special effects are cartoons. It's really bizarre.
0: <laughs> oh god, I can't even remember. It's been years since I've watched it. I bought all the box sets purely because of what it was, and then I you know, each time I sat down to watch them I was thinking to myself, Hmm not quite what I remember.
1: But also, um my wife's one of her ex boyfriends was a big Blake Seven fan, and uh. so I've been forbidden from ever watching it. So that, that suits me fine, really.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say that's a good as good excuse as any I've ever heard. Yeah. Did you, did you when you were a young kid, like, going back then right now to when you were a kid watching Doctor Who, did you seek out other things of a similar ilk? Um, as a kid,
1: anything to do with um, space or dinosaurs or stuff like that was. Obviously exciting you know, i think Empire Strikes Back was probably one of the first films I saw um and I loved sapphire and steel that was fantastic um Flash Gordon all the sort of Spielberg films that was that was yeah i I loved all that. I don't know if I sought it out because of doctor Hill I think it was just stuff that I liked, you know um I liked stuff which was mind expanding or technological that's right yeah where, where I thought the future lay. <laughs>
0: so as you get older then you start well obviously at some point you must have thought to yourself writing that's something a i can do b that you know i'm good at and c that i'd like to do but the way you actually got into it was quite odd or let's say slightly unusual not the way most people would get into it who thereafter make a success of it
1: yeah, I, um, I have an odd career. I mean, I, the, the, the three stages you outlined there. Yeah. Um, I think when I was about 10, I told people I wanted to be a script editor, which is kind of a script editor. I wanted to be a script editor. God knows. Um, because I'd read in Doctor Who Monthly interviews with script editors with, um, Dennis Spooner and stuff. And I was going, that's a brilliant job. Uh, you get to tell writers how to be better at their jobs. Um, and I'd written stuff. School one competition so you get a sort of a positive reinforcement if people Hmm. say you're good at something you do it more um and then but then um i think when i was about 16 i started writing a doctor who book and but i sort of lost interest in doctor who and stuff sadly uh
0: Uh, did you ever finish the book then
1: uh no it was it was um i started it twice i think it was it was um I wrote it once with a doctor, Chris and Roz. Oh, so It was around yeah. then. That's how I remember just. Where they'd been announced as new companions, but I'd no idea what they were like. And then I rewrote that as a second doctor and Jamie and Zoe thing. And I don't even know if I ever sent it off. It was, um, oh, was called now? It was, um, uh.
0: Do you still but, have it?
1: Uh, no, I've lost it, but I, I used oh, the, uh, the, but I, I reused the story for um, the cobwebs, so oh, okay. <laughs> nothing goes to waste. That's yeah, I was going
0: to say, I wondered if it might have turned up somewhere. Yeah, that,
1: um, it became cobwebs in the end, so uh, nothing is um, wasted. It was no. called the fear. That was, what it was called. It's called the fear. I remember now. Uh,
0: okay, yeah.
1: But um, then, um, going off to university and stuff, I wasn't that interested in. Doctor it was because it, it was wasn't on anymore and it was the books mm. and I'd failed to keep up which is always the the sort of the, when you drop off I think you, um, when you get more and more you get further and further behind yeah um and there wasn't really a Doctor Who club at university or any other fans so there was none of that sort of social aspect that would otherwise sort of reinforce my sort of interest so um I got interested in pop music and stuff instead and I spent seven years um running the Rasia Fan Club, which is an unusual <laughs> career step really. Yeah. I mean it was I was in the situation of at university, um in the, my sort of final year and everyone who I'd known from the previous year was sort of uh temping, you know. And I I was in I was in contact with the record company that Razia um, was signed to and I knew the people there because I was well, such an enthusiastic fan. Oh, you have you to know.
0: say now because I do know, but I can't remember what was the name of the record company. Oh, that's Mute Records. Mute, of course. It yeah, run yeah.
1: by Daniel Miller, mm. fantastic person. Um,
0: that's where Depeche Mode were, of course, as well. Isn't yes, it? yes, yeah. Depeche
1: Mode and stuff. And I'll tell you my Depeche Mode story in a minute. <laughs> Fair uh, <laughs> enough. Um, uh, the and did you? So have... I, was, I was just oh, one. Those, on. I was just one of those annoying fans who find stuff out and was really keen. And, um, but it was also, I was also positive. So we had a sort of internet, I think it was a Yahoo group or something. And I was just being most positive and loving and enthusiastic fan. Yeah. And so when they needed someone to take over the fan club, I went in for an interview and um I took it over. And so that's, wow. So I did that for um seven years, which was,
0: was uh, that, not, is not it? a
1: bad way to spend your 20s here, I suppose.
0: I, is that like something you do part time at the weekends, or was that? Because I mean, that must have been quite an endeavor. Was it, that was that a paid job?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was it was involved running their website later on and doing mail order and stuff as well. Um, right. And mute records had a sort of policy that everything they'd ever released would be available all the time on mail order, so there there was a lot of that. And
0: there can't be many people. Who can have something quite like that on their CV
1: no well there's, I think there's five other people who have that on their CV <laughs> yeah. my predecessor, my, my successes um, but yeah it's um, it's an odd thing but it was fun, I mean there was a lot of fun of just travelling, I went to New York with the band um, going backstage at concerts meeting, met Stephen Fry and stuff, it was all sort of wonderful really, I have no regrets Quite heady, and also Erasure imagine, fans yeah. are lovely people. They're all really enthusiastic and as a reflection of the band, I think, really, They're all sort of uh, very tolerant and uh giving people.
0: Yeah, they do strike me as well, I don't well, I say they do strike me. The, the Erasure strike me as the kind of a band who'd sort of engender that kind of feeling amongst their fans.
1: We I think they've always like They've already, already passed through the sort of embarrassment threshold.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, going, well, if, if you're, if you're not ashamed of being an Erasure fan, nothing can touch you, really. So who cares?
0: So, okay. Before, all right. Let's do the Depeche Mode story. You promised.
1: Oh, uh, Depeche Mode. Um, well, this sort of links in because, I mean, in my last couple of years now, I was getting back into writing and I'd written, um, a, a, a proposal, proposal, which became, um, Festival of Death, which was a quite well received book. Um, and I think it was one of my last years at Mute, um, there's a pop quiz every year where all the different record companies buy a table and they send eight people from each record company to sit around It is pop quiz and it's hosted by Mike Reed in its a hotel and it's very glamorous right. and because I was a bit nerdy about certain areas of music, I was on the team along with um, I think it was Martin Gore and Alan Wilder of Depeche Mode uh, Daniel Miller um, and the publishing people from the company and so on yeah and one of the high points of my life is that someone came over to the table and went oh is it you can I have your autograph and Martin Martin is looking at me and going I'm trying to be and going, no it's Johnny he's written this fantastic Doctor Who book
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: joking so sitting next to Martin Gore and I go yeah okay I'll sign something it's a bore but I will <laughs>
0: Oh my lord, that is, that's just ridiculous, quite frankly.
1: That's worlds colliding.
0: How the hell does, I mean, because this must have been pretty early on for you as well, you can't have written an awful lot by this point, I wouldn't have thought.
1: No, I think that would be, I'd have infested death and blood tied around then, I think, but that'd be about it,
0: yeah. So how on earth did somebody manage to recognise you?
1: Uh... They Wouldn't have recognized my face, they'd have, um, the name from somewhere. I don't know, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, someone was chatting to someone else, Was um, because there was another guy at the record company who was, uh, into a Doctor Who a bit, so he didn't mention me to other people,
0: so yeah. right, right. God, that's weird, though, isn't it? But we always find each other, don't we?
1: Yeah, it's sort of weird, I think. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's sort of, yeah, everyone. I don't know what to say to that really, but um, yeah. Well,
0: I wonder if there's something we do with our eyebrows that's just slightly different from what everybody else does, so that when you're walking down the street, you can recognise somebody who likes Doctor Who by what they're doing with their eyebrows.
1: Certainly, when I used to go to the um the the tavern in the late nineties, and you could certainly easily tell which were the, who were the Doctor Who fans, yeah, and and who were the normal people who were having a very strange evening.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you said the word normal. <laughs> <laughs> I was well, going to say yeah,
1: the, the, the not we you know the yeah. norms we hate the norms
0: <laughs> absolutely right your first well the, the the story of how you became a writer or we, for the um, Doctor Who Rangers, I should say because a lot of people listening to this probably won't know
1: okay well um, I'd i written for a radio for um, a show called Weekending and stuff so I'd done a bit of professional writing mm. and i Written, you know, the Rasure Fan magazine, and um, one of our readers was Gary Russell, so he knew of me through that route from from being an Asia fan, um, and at the same time, I'd sent off this proposal that became Festival of Death. It was my first pitch that I'd sent in, and it got picked up. Yeah. So I'm just was... going, oh, I'm going. This is really easy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and everyone else is everyone else is saying it's really difficult. Right? Seems, um. So, I, I think I was walking around in a cloud of my own ego for about 15 years afterwards. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but then I think, uh, Jack Rayner, who'd been the one who'd seen my submission and gone, oh, this is interesting. A, a Doctor Who story where he arrives and everyone's saying, thank you for saving the day because he's arrived after the story's happened and now he has to go back and have it. Okay. That's, that's an obvious thing to do, that sort of thing do every week now. But it's the kind then, of thing
0: that's only obvious after you've seen it done, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, it occurred to me years before as a, as, a, as a funny way into a story. Yeah. Um And there's things like Back to the Future Part Two where the Marty McFly is running around in the background of the first film, which I adore so much. I think that's so clever. Um So anyway, Jacqueline had seen that pitch and she mentioned me to Gary Russell, and Gary was going, "Oh." Ooh, I know the guy who does the Eurasia magazine, and I think that's how I got blood-tied. <laughs> uh, right. So he, he knew that I'd write this magazine, it would have funny bits in it, and he knew that I'd written for radio, so I it think is... that's how I came on. But it, it, look, looking back, he was still taking quite a big risk on an unknown writer at the time. So
0: Well, yeah, there are not many people who come just from really having sent submissions in. There certainly aren't any more.
1: No, I mean, there's not really anywhere to send them to. It's, no, um, I mean, big finish have tried it in the past. They've had sort of open competitions and stuff, and it's just uh, it's.
0: I should imagine but, you get uh, deluged under a tide. It's unimaginable. It's unimaginable. Yeah. I, mean, I think
1: Simon Gary did it for Benny or something, and it, uh, what happened was I think the the competition. Let's call it the competition. It's not the really yeah. competition. It's an open door policy. Yeah, I think it was. It was mentioned on the BBC's Writers Room website. So you suddenly you get like another 500 or 1,000 people sending in ideas.
0: And how are you going to get through that many? And by the time you've sort of started wading through them, it becomes more and more impossible to work out which ones are the good ones, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, but, but people have come through. I think Matt Fitton yeah. came through that and um, weirdly Matthew Sweet, I think, came through that as well. I think he sent in a submission as part of a competition and I think Guy Russell was going, but you're Matthew Sweet. Yeah, <laughs> you,
0: really. could have, you could have
1: just got your agent to, to call us and we'd have commissioned you. Uh, so, but, but it's, it's also, it's also the other thing is I was doing this, um, this four-parter that's coming out, um, next month called Breaking Bubbles. And I was trying to find new writers. So I was sort of on the other side of the fence going, how does it look when you're trying to find new people? And just where do you look? It's really difficult. Um, I was sort of, um, Emailing friends for recommendations, um, looking on all the sort of internet forums when they have the threads of why don't you use so and so writer? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, but what you want is um, someone who's done lots of fan fiction. So, who everyone knows. else is saying, who everyone else, else is saying, this person's really good. They should get a break. Yeah, but I couldn't find. Really you need somebody. Like
0: that. Yeah, you need somebody who's also got experience, don't you? So that you know you can trust them at least to a certain degree. To be able to get on with it and do what needs to be done,
1: um, experience is—I don't know if experience. What I mean is, is it wayward. takes
0: more than just an idea. You need to have the wherewithal to be able to see that idea through as well.
1: You need, yeah. I mean, you need to be quite a sort of a, a self-critical um, person. You can't, and but generally, it's just the attitude, really. You want someone who's enthusiastic, who loves Doctor Who, yeah. but who, if you give them notes, is going to do them all. Right. That's what right, you—you yeah. don't want someone who is precious, which happens sometimes. You know, people go, "But I'm allowed, how dare you change a single word of my masterpiece?" And it's like, yeah. that's not how that's not how it works. <laughs> um, you 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 write a script. In, I've had scripts done by um, Big Finish where I think it's about seventy percent me, thirty percent other people, and you just suck it up and move on. It just happens because no one's rewriting your work or getting to change it to make the script worse. They're doing it to make the script better, and your name's on it, so the better that script is, is a reflection on you. So you don't want it to be crap. And if other people are throwing in their ideas, that's all to the good, really.
0: So, oh, I was going to point out, we kind of moved on, but I shall do anyway. If if your script is accepted because you sent in a submission as part of an open door... That's pretty flattering on your writing because, let's face it, you didn't get the job because your uncle was the boss or because you knew somebody who'd done it before or because your name was, you know, put forward by a mate. You got the job purely on the quality of your writing.
1: Yeah, I, I don't really ever... That's
0: a compliment. Uh,
1: it is It is very flattering. I mean, I, like I said, I was, I was surprised and um, I was sort of amazed. I mean, I had... I mean, the, the other side of the coin is when I'd sent in that first submission for Festival of Death, that those first three chapters, I had written those over and over again. I'd written about ten times. Yeah. You know, I, I had put a hell of a lot of work into them. And when I wrote the book, I put a vast amount of work. I wrote the book about five times over, going through it and sending it off to people and getting their criticisms and writing it again and sending it to other people and getting their criticism. So I, I you know, worked my arse off. Um, so... Yes, you get the ego of people going, Oh, you've, you've got a book first time and it's gone down well. But it's like them, the, the, the real skill is just going, are you prepared to put in all those hours? Mm. That's the, um, that's the thing you need. I think it's people who are going to, who realize how much work it is and it isn't, uh, it isn't quick.
0: How long then before you got involved with writing audios then, big finish and that? Because you I must have written a handful of books first before you wrote your first audio, or am I am I getting that wrong? Uh,
1: it was quite there was a sort of a period I think that uh, was around 2000 was where I wrote uh, first a death, then Blood Tide, and then an and Flip Flop about the same time I think, because I think Flip Flop, as I recall, was on the shelf for about a year or two years at the time. It seemed like a hell of a long time. Um... And then I wrote The Tomorrow Windows, it was my third book. And then the new series came back and I basically went off and did other things for five years. Um, I had had my own little hiatus.
0: Was that deliberate? Or was that uh, just the way things fell?
1: Generally, what happened was as the new series came back, I think Big Finish had a policy of Gary really wanted to use writers he hadn't used before. Um, yeah, um so after... um Flip flop. I took a sort of a little break from big finish stuff mainly because I was, um, I had a TV show commissioned, uh, a pilot was made. Um, IT very kindly spent two hundred thousand pounds making a show which basically the only people have seen it is me, Joe Lidster, and Joe Lidster's mum. Oh, you uh, joking? Uh, no, no, no one's seen it. Uh, it had Chris what was Marshall, it? He, oh, go on, sorry, Chris go Marshall, on. Sir Anne Jones and Dean Lennox Kelly, and it was called Plenty More Fish, and it was a pilot. It was okay as a pilot. I mean, it wasn't brilliant. I would have fixed it if we would had a second chance, but generally, to cut a long and very tiresome story short, it was commissioned for a story, and then the um, ITVs, basically, their policy changed, and Uh. it wasn't commissioned. Uh, And even if it had gone ahead, to be honest, it would have been completely forgotten. (laughs) It wasn't. It wasn't going to be that great. I, would, I mean, it hopefully would have led on to bigger and wider things. But um,
0: oh, that's it, such it, a nightmare, it, isn't it? it?
1: It was. It, it was. Um. Uh, it was an. How should I say? It was a character building moment for me. My character was was certainly built afterwards. Um. And but after that, there were. I wrote for a sketch show called Swinging, which um, got mm. a second series and did quite a lot of that. And then bits for dead ringers, and Jenny' is about getting offered almost like a dozen other sitcoms were optioned or um commissioned um full scripts and stuff sometimes two, two scripts uh and that one for about five or six years i mean and to begin with it was okay, but um and I had a film optioned. It's going quite well, but it just sort of lost momentum, I think, really, because of um, maybe my agent was losing interest, or maybe I was getting lazy, or not taking up or being as um, proactive as I could have been in retrospect. What people uh,
0: don't realise is that, you know, the amount of television programs and films and everything else they see that actually come to the screen is only a tiny fraction of the amount of stuff that actually gets written and often starts into production and doesn't go anywhere, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's, I mean there is normally I think ten scripts for each one that's made or something. It's and that's ten scripts which are commissioned and paid for for
0: each one that's
1: made. For each one that's commissioned and paid for, there's probably another hundred that are um, submitted on spec. Um, I mean I'm not moaning about it. It's just the way it is. Uh, But it was it was good when um that I during that I had um. Doctor Magazine would commission me for articles and laterly, latterly comic strips, um, thanks to Clayton Hickman and mm. Peter Ware in particular and late then Tom, Tom and Scott. Um, and then from the comic strips, I sort of uh, gradually uh, did more and more of that. And then um, Big Finish asked me back to do... Um, uh, what was it? I'll look it up on here because I can't fucking well, remember. Before, before <laughs> we get people. back to Big Finish then, let's yeah.
0: stop and talk about the comic strips for a minute. Because yeah. that strikes me as a particularly odd kind of uh, way to work. If you're used to writing, say, prose, then that's one thing. But writing scripts is something else entirely. It's a completely different way of working. But writing comic strips as well, it strikes me that brings its own problems and its own solutions. Was that something that it was easy for you to do, having already maybe written some audio scripts? Or was that something that you also found a bit weird and maybe a bit difficult to get into? And
1: Um, was it rewarding as well? Well, I mean, to begin with, when I did the first one, which was uh, for a storybook, it was called Opera of Doom. And that was a a sharp learning curve of... Lots and lots of drafts, and then being quite heavily rewritten at the end of the day, and then more drafts and more <laughs> wow. rewrites. But that's because I'm, you know, learning just how to format a script and stuff. Yeah. I mean, writing a comic strip, I'd say, is quite close to writing a film or TV script. It's, I mean, particularly particularly a film script because it's very visual storytelling. Um, I mean, there's a certain grammar of each box has to be an action happening. You want there to be a sort of mini moment of suspense or cliffhanger at the end of every page. So that's every six or, six or so frames. Um, and you want the dialogue to do lots of work in a comic strip because the dialogue, for someone like Doctor Magazine, has to create the character's voice as well. Yeah. So when I was doing David Tennant, they had to be very David Tennanty lines, or Matt Smith, they had to evoke his performance within yeah, just, yeah. just two or three lines. Yeah. Um, but I got better at it um, and uh, I had lots of fun I mean um, I think some of my best things I've done were in the comic strips I did a a silly funny one called Death of the Doctor which was about the villains having a sort of self-help group where they all sort of stand up and say I was defeated by the Doctor I was defeated by the Doctor Um, there (laughs) was that that. I did um, a Donna Noble one called um, The Time of My Life which went very well and uh, when I was doing Matt Smith, I did a story called um, "The Professor," the um,
0: Queen and the, queen the bookshop, and the,
1: queen and the bookshop, which also was what was great. So, I mean, there's lots and lots I'm so proud of. I did a Bollywood one, which was great, and an Exos one, which was great.
0: <laughs> oh, the golden ones! Yes, I remember yeah. that.
1: Which was sort of inspired by a Mika song. Um, where it has the chorus? Um, we are not what you think we are. We are golden oh that's quite kind of sinister these little children all chanting that in Mika's song that could be something I could use and it also had bits of um, oh you pretty things by David Bowie in there and stuff Uh weirdly inspired by um
0: pop songs well that's an interesting thing you've brought up there because when you write and when you write a lot if you if you're writing a book a year that's one thing but if you're writing comic strips and short stories and audio dramas as well as novels basically you need to drink in an awful lot of inspiration don't you so do you find you're getting ideas from some of the oddest places
1: uh maybe in the uh, in the past at the moment um i mean i used to have a sort of backlog of doctor who ideas a long Long, large back- backlog going back to the age of about 14. Um, <laughs> but I have actually kind of worked through some of that backlog. I mean, stories like um, The Crimes of Thomas Booster, that was an old story. Max Warp was an old story. Book um, Protect and Survive was something I'd thought of doing as a Sapphire and Steel when Big Finish were doing their Sapphire and Steels. So oh. Babble Sphere, I I'd, I'd sort of comm- I'd submitted as a comic strip five years before it became an audio. So sometimes these things are, you know, submitted, or rejected. They go in the bottom drawer. Um, mm. And while I still have quite a few stories in the bottom drawer that I think are brilliant, uh, no one else, everyone else, has yet to be <laughs> convinced of their brilliance. Uh, so, but generally, with now, now it's um, there'll be a brief, and I'll try and come up with something. Um, so it's, it's now is this it's a muscle which has developed of coming up with stories. I mean, I have a sort of theory that generally when you're writing, you have to put in at least as much writing as you put out. So if I'm writing a book, I have to have read, you know, several books just to have enough words in my head.
0: Right, gotcha, yeah.
1: Um, so, So you're not sort of just running on empty, so you can... And also, I think the more you read, the more you get an idea of what good writing looks like. You know, you become more discerning, and you just pick up voices and habits. I mean... In the past, if I've wanted to write in a certain style, like um, I did a thing called um, Last of the Colophon which was trying to be in a sort of Robert Holmesy sort of style. So that was that, a false Doctor adventure. Yeah. So yeah. for that, I I watched um, all his Blake Seven episodes because his Doctor Who's <laughs> were kind of familiar to me, but his Blake yeah. Seven less so. So just to go, okay, that's that's his voice, that's his style, and maybe hope ho- consciously or subconsciously some of it would um sink in. But yeah i mean with um the comic strips would the be ideas would come from anywhere there's um one which was kind of based on a nightmare I had which was um forever dreaming where I'd had this nightmare about um nuclear war turning everyone into showroom dummies um but that was also that was also a comic strip where it was too close to what they were doing on t v which was something that with the comic strips in particular because I was writing Matt Smith comic strips at the same time as Matt Smith being the doctor on TV. Yeah. It would come up again and again that what I was writing because I was trying to write something close to what they do on TV. Yeah. I would end up getting it right. <laughs> <Long laughs> i be too close.
0: Oh no I suspect that probably happened with quite a few writers. There must well, have think, been an I awful it, lot of Yeah.
1: I think it came comes up again and again with people. I mean um, the Fever dreaming was um, people turning into dolls which they did and then I did a, was going to do a story about um, the TARDIS turning into a monster and running around in the corridors inside the TARDIS with the TARDIS trying to kill people. And that was too close to the Doctor's wife. So I changed it all around and it became a completely different story, which was very, um, I don't know frustrating is the right word, it was just exhausting having come up with a complete story and having spent two years working towards this grand finale to then go... Okay, I now have to come up with something else that fits everything I've set up.
0: Yeah, I can imagine how much of a nightmare that must have been. So, I mean, the worst thing of all is that you've come up with a plan, and all of a sudden your plan's been taken away from you, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, that... I mean, it was well, it was, uh, it was the sort of thing where I managed to make it all fit together, and it was a uh, and it fitted together probably better than it would have done otherwise. Um, Because I just had to work a bit more. And that's just. I'm just moaning because I had to do more work, really.
0: (laughs) Now, before we get back into Big Finish, it must have been something like around this time, no, probably before this time, even perhaps, that you wrote the. um, Oh, I don't know how to describe it, the script for the City of Death documentary.
1: Yeah, uh, it came from Ed Stradling. I think I've been. It had a list of people he wanted to write it, uh, and they all glad- said no. <laughs> yes, gradually, <laughs> well, gradually it worked. He worked. For, I, think it, I think he started on Stephen Moffat, and then he went to Gareth Roberts, and then it came to me, I think. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Or it we went to Nick Pegg, and Nick Pegg was busy, or he'd done something else. But it was. Oh,
0: get away from you! They were the choices that came after you, and you know it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh But um, it was a lovely labour of love to do because it's you know one of my favourite stories, at the time it was my favourite story, and um, to sort of just get the paperwork and try and find out new facts and all sorts of things. I mean, it was an hour long. I think we had enough material for Goat to Go on for another 15 minutes. Yeah. uh, Because as originally scripted, it was more of a everything Douglas Adams did to do with Doctor Who. So it had stuff on the pirate planet and Shado and stuff, which... Went off into other places, other documentaries, I think. Hmm. It all got used and ended up somewhere. But even then, there were things that we couldn't do that we'd have liked to have done. We couldn't get Dudley Simpson interviewed, which would have been fantastic. Um, Hmm. And at one point, the plan was to get Tom Baker to do the narration. And so there were things that you're always sort of wishing that it could have been. Yeah. I don't know. But still, that is.
0: Yeah, that is a lovely documentary on a lovely set for one of the best remembered stories. So it must be, it must be nice to be associated just with that entire project, really.
1: Yeah, I mean the the, um, the thing I'm most proud of is there's a bit in it where um, you get the script on the screen, the rehearsal script, on the left scrolling upwards as the scene plays out, and you can see all the changes that were made. No, yeah, and, yeah, and it's a sort of a revelation, really, particularly with to death, that you've got Douglas Adams's or Douglas Adams and Graham Williams, um, script, and you go, all the lines, all the all the meaning is unchanged, but pretty much every single line has been fiddled with by Tom Baker and Lalla Ward and the rest of the cast. I mean, it has really been gone through a, a polishing process, yeah, much more than most scripts would have gone through. And I thought that was a revelation of just how much was changed and how, how little it remained as it was originally written.
0: I suppose that was one of the main sort of features of that time, is that they were writing, rewriting things that much. And I suppose with a script that was written virtually overnight, you might expect that perhaps a little bit more. But even so, that's still you know, considering it's Douglas Adams and, of course, he gets all the plauders for it. It just goes to show what a team effort it was.
1: Yeah, I imagine the best jokes in it were Douglas's and they were left unchanged, but a lot of it is just the rhythm of the lines is... Um, Tom and Lalla, yeah. Yeah, and it has a, so it has more of a flow and they're more, you know, bouncing off each other a lot, so things like that work... I mean, it's no different, really, I think, from what Russell or Stephen would do to polish someone else's script now, so it's yeah. just unusual that it was done by the cast <laughs> rather <laughs> than the script editor. So.
0: Yeah, I bet it was. Right, you got invited back to Big Finish then, essentially.
1: Yes, uh, I think um, something had fallen through or something. I, I, I have no idea what the details were, but I came back to do an Lalla Ward companion chronicle called The Beautiful People, which um I joke sometimes, but it, I wrote it in pretty much the same amount of time that it takes to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was written. I mean, um, it was, was written before in you go day. on
0: though? Was that because the idea was so strong in your head, or because you were pushed for time?
1: Uh, it was. It was pushed for time. I think um, they oh. booked the studio. They'd booked that um, award and it was um, we need something by this date really quickly. Wow. So. Um, yeah i was really delighted and um very very um, grateful that alan barnes and nick rigs thought of me when they to help them out of this hole because yeah normally when you're in a hole with it and something's fallen through you go to your most tried and trusted tested writer yeah you don't go to someone who hasn't worked for the company for 5 years uh and i'm immeasurably glad and flattered and delighted that they did um and that sounds sort of kind of um over the top, but I, I was just really happy to be back, um, and it hasn't gone away. I'm still happy to be there.
0: Well, it's like a almost like a family company, really, isn't it? I mean, it, obviously, it's not family, but you know, the atmosphere as uh, appears to us who are not there, but that's how it seems.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go too far.
0: No, no, no. I mean,
1: the only thing I'm slightly wary of is if you go too far, it's like. You might get the impression that um, Johnny is only commissioned because he's mates with Nick Briggs and went to the tavern with Alan Barnes. No, no, no. Uh, that's not happened. what I meant, no. Which never happened. I see, I see Alan maybe once every five years. Mm. Um, and I'm sort of friends with Nick Briggs, but I I don't see him more than once every three months or so. I mean, these aren't great friends of mine. So the, the only reason they're commissioning me is because they think I do good work, um, oh, absolutely! I yeah, and I'm cheap and I do it on time. <laughs> um, so, and I, I wasn't friends with them before I did big finish or anything. So, uh, I
0: meant in terms of a good working atmosphere, really. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's, and it is, and I mean, it's a good working atmosphere. And I hope I haven't fallen out with anyone. I think I've got, I get on with most people I've worked with fairly well. Um, well, and, your audio yeah, dramas are always
0: be, very well received. I mean, you're one of the ones that people look out for, if you know what I mean. You know, if you see that something's coming up by Jonathan Morris, you think, oh, I'm going to enjoy that.
1: Well, hopefully. I mean, yeah. I I've, I, I wouldn't say everything I've done been <laughs> well-received, to be honest. Well. Because uh, uh, those, those are the ones which weren't well-received, I remember. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, what I'm very glad about and proud of is the fact that I don't do the same thing every time. Hmm. Um, that. It would be easy to be pigeonholed as just going, oh, so-and-so does comedy, or they do scary stuff, or, you know, history, um, or hard science fiction, and I've kind of done all of those different things, and I keep on sort of bouncing around from style to style. Um,
0: Does Does that make it easier for you to change styles? Because it strikes me that that might make your life a little bit easier, rather than trying to do the same thing over and over again if you give yourself variety it gives you more impetus to go out there and sort of get it done to find new things to do
1: yeah i mean it keeps it interesting for me that each thing i write whether and also bouncing between comic strips and novels and um audios and stuff that's that or doing doing an or doing a factual article for the magazine or something yeah um to keep on making it different from what i just did is really important to me i mean you know, so if I write a comedy, the next thing will be quite serious, and then it'll sort of might go into history. You know, it'll always be different, which keeps it interesting for me, I think. Um, and the other thing I was, I've what I, what I'm whenever I come up with a new story, I have a sort of it is I am feel beholden to be different from everything I've done before. Which yeah. was kind of easy when I'd only done two. <laughs> but now you're sort of getting on for 50 Doctor Who stories, or probably more if you. in the form of media. Um, going, okay, my story now has to be different from all of those is getting harder. But harder is good. But yeah, it's, it, yeah. But it, it gives just, you something
0: um, to strive for.
1: Yes, but so it's. because
0: yeah, I did
1: a, a story where. I, it started with um the Doctor and the TARDIS with um Tegan, Turlo, and Nissa, and the TARDIS was out of control and drawn down to a planet. Uh, it's called Prisoners of Fate. And I'd written this TARDIS scene where, you know, and I, I wrote it, it was terrible. You know, it was so boring. It was so corny and cliched. And I was going, why is this? And it's like, because I'd written the same scene before.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. And I'd written
1: it in a thing called Cobweb, so it was pretty much the same scene. And it was like, I can never repeat myself. I must never repeat myself because it just... You don't want to be in that situation. I mean, yeah. if, I, if I if I found myself doing that, I would stop doing them, to be honest. Because um, it's the fact that I'm doing original work and stretching myself and trying to get outside my comfort zone all the time, which is why I keep doing it.
0: One thing I find... Interesting about writing for Big Finish. Well, that made it sound like I write for Big Finish. About people who write for Big Finish. Do you find... Because when you're working in the audio sphere, there is, for your listener, there's another remove from the story than there is from the television in that there's no pictures. Do you find... Because obviously you've written some stories which feature monsters or villains from the past and obviously a lot that haven't. Do you find there's a kind of shorthand if you're using something like say Davros that you don't have in your own work that perhaps makes it easier to write that as an audio drama where you because when you're writing an audio drama you have to allow for the listener being just a listener rather than a viewer as well don't you
1: yeah i mean the 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 mechanics of writing an audio because Doctor Who is kind of a um an action based series mm. rather than a dialogue based series. So sort of unusually you're writing dialogue based stories but you're trying to evoke settings, whether it's historical or a space station or, you know, corridors or tunnels or something. Um
0: a worse, yeah, an alien planet.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um and it's difficult, but uh you're and she's sort of trying to find ways of getting the characters to say what they see without them just saying what they see. Mm. Um, so the information is fed across to the listener in a way that sounds unforced and natural, but also um, quickly and clearly. Um, and you sort of get that with experience and trusting things to the sound designers as well, because uh, yeah, a, lot yeah. of, a lot of it the sound designers can do. So you you don't need to have people standing around going, we're in a tropical rainforest or we're in a busy station or whatever, mm. because the sound design will do that anyway. Um Says that, but yes, with um, sort of monsters from the past or characters in the past, you've got a bit of a shorthand that everyone knows what the master looks like, or um, the Daleks, or a crinoid, or something, uh, or the the nucleus of the swarm, which is coming <laughs> up. Um,
0: so you um, don't have to explain to them what it is, dear, which is basically it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, for the for the for the. the the Revenge of the Prawn story. Sorry, swarm. Uh, it's <laughs> it's it's also set in some of the locations from The Invisible Enemy, so the, you know, people will be able to imagine the same corridors that are on TV being used and redressed for this story, as it were. So wow. there's more of the shorthand done there. But
0: Do you find doing a sequel to something that's perhaps not as well remembered, because let's be honest, The Invisible Enemy is in nobody's top ten, even though it petrified me when I was a kid, do you find writing a sequel or a follow-up of some kind to a story that's not as well remembered allows you, A, more leeway, and B, does it perhaps make... I'm going to say use the expression again, make your job easier, but if you're going to write a sequel to Genesis of the Daleks, you're in a hiding to nothing from the start, aren't you? Yeah, if you
1: write a sequel to The Seeds of Doom. (laughs) you are going to go, well, it's... It's the same as the Caesar Doom. I think that's what people said about Hot House, because you know, in that, that monster was the crinoid, which doesn't isn't very chatty, which is a problem, mm. and um, that only has one sort of modus operandi, um, that it it you know it does turns vegetable life against humanity, and it creates sort of gets bigger and bigger, and then it launches off and spores and stuff. So that sort of predicated what story I would tell, because anything else with the crinoid wouldn't kind of work because the monster would behave in the same way. Yeah. Um. I mean, I tried with that. I tried to make it about um, Heston Blumenthal, but that got projected. Uh, <laughs> but with the the, the 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 swarm and stuff, I mean, well, you also have other monsters like um the Ice Warriors or the sidemen or the Daleks where they can be sort of, have lots and lots of different stories. They're sort of, they've got lots of potential to be in different situations. They're quite adaptable, aren't they? Adaptable, yeah. Um, Whereas the swarm thing, it's kind of a bit of the unrealised potential of the story, but um, of going going, going, it wasn't maybe fulfilled. Um, that you watch Nicholas Blommond and go, oh, they could have done more with that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Do you actually sit and watch television stories and think, if only they? would Well, I could.
1: I, I scream. I yeah. I mean, um, the worst ones is I think um the chase part Um. The chase part four, I think, is the one that makes me scream.
0: Oh, is that the haunted house? The haunted house one. Yeah.
1: Because the Doctor says, as a theory, going, oh, we've landed in the subconscious of the human nightmare. And you're sort of going, yes, yes. That's <laughs> a really good idea. <laughs> Tell that story. Don't make it a haunted house. That's rubbish. Um, I think it happens in um in uh, the Edge of Destruction as well. That Susan, mm. the Barbara goes, a ghost has come on board the spaceship and is possessing us one by one. You go. That's a really good story. Yeah. Why well, aren't you telling that? I mean, it's happened in the new series as well, where occasionally a character will, will say something. And you go. That's a better story than the one you're actually telling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it happens. I mean, I'm sure it's happened in my own scripts, and I've been unaware of it. But, um, but yeah. I mean, not just talking or anything can sort of spark ideas. I mean, a, an example I'd give of that is, um, human nature, uh, the book now. Scarecrow thing, mm. where at the end um, the doctor does these sort of extreme punishments for the family of blood. Yeah, you know they're trapped inside mirrors or um, black holes or turn into scarecrows, and that I loved the story, you know. But that bit bugged me. That bit felt like it was kind of um,
0: didn't feel very doctorish, really.
1: It was it, it was the doctor being weirdly cruel. I found. Yeah, yeah. Um But that's kind of one of the things I put in to protect and survive. The idea that the doctor would come up with these strange punishments for um for immortal beings uh because and then protect and survive is what happens if the doctor doctor's companions end up trapped in one of the doctor's punishments oh. so it was kind of inspired by that part of human nature i didn't like um go okay let's let's take that idea a bit further go you know, why did I have that reaction to it why is um Um, how could that backfire? Yeah, So, it's always sort of inspired by what you read or see, to answer your question.
0: Going back a little bit to the Companion Chronicles, then, are they very much different to write from your sort of -of run-of-the-mill big Finnish audio drama, as it were, a full-cast audio drama? The Companion Chronicles must be a a different um, way of working again.
1: Well, to begin with, when I was doing the first one, I... the brief was different i wasn't it wasn't that far from a talking book uh for the beautiful people mm. and then it sort of drifted it became um a companion telling a story because i was listening to what everyone else was doing and seeing what else had been done um and that sort of so the great space of elevator was kind of a, single, a first person narration and then The Glorious Revolution moved away from that a bit more. and, But it was still, when there's another character talking, it's just because we've got another actor for that scene. Yeah.
0: And is this a bit like writing a book, then?
1: Yeah, I mean, you, the thing is, it's an odd situation to go have one character narrating a thing and then have another voice turn up for certain yeah. scenes. It's something in the format which you have to kind of reconcile. And then gradually... With the Mister Time, I sort of worked out why the second voice would be there. And then the last three I've done have all basically been um, two or three hand stories. Uh, so they're not doing the companion telling a story stuff at all. They are just plays which play out with a small cast.
0: Right, which makes a lot more sense. I mean, if you're going to adapt that kind of... Um theme, it makes a lot more sense to try and do that if you can. And it's yeah, also nice I mean, to but play with li- the format. There's a limit to yeah. how many
1: ways you can do a sort of two-hander, I think. Mm. So, um, so I was sort of running out of ways of <laughs> thinking of doing it.
0: But you've done quite a few of those, so you must have enjoyed the format, I'd have said. Or was it just because they kept saying, oh, Johnny, you know how to do it, do us another one.
1: Well, yeah, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have done them if I wasn't asked, obviously, but um, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean it's interesting because just it means I can go to bits of Doctor Who that I haven't done before, or characters that I haven't written for before, so it was really good to I love doing a Charlton um, base under siege story, as it were um, you know, I I got so much pleasure out of writing that story I mean, because it was just okay, I've got to have some foam in it, and I've got to have on the beach <laughs> and you know it was and I've got to have a base commander who's paranoid and neurotic and having a nervous breakdown it was it was utterly you know box ticking exercise, I suppose, but uh, trying to also tell an original story, but with all the bits that are in all of the stories um and with the glorious revolution, it was because I'd heard Fraser Hine's doing the second Doctor's voice so I could write scenes where the second Doctor and Jamie were having an argument which you know, Fraser Hines did in one take bang um, and it was wonderful to listen to you know, you get wow. chills going, yeah. going wow this is really going to work um, and Tells of the Vault was a chance to write for some other companions I hadn't written for before and uh, Mastermind I hadn't written for the Master before so yeah, it's just a chance to sort of do new bits and bobs.
0: Well, speaking of people you've not had a chance to write for before, and obviously you've written for these quite a bit now, but it must have been an absolute delight to get to write at Jago and Lightfoot.
1: Yeah, it was, it was good to be sort of invited on the ground floor, as it were, for the first box set when we only had the mahogany murderers and tons of Wang Chang to go on, mm. so we're sort of still creating a format there. Um, and the uh, spirit Trap was just based around a joke that I'd thought of, which is that you've got a psychic, and the psychic is genuine, and the ghosts are just lying to the psychic. So, <laughs> so the psychic's going, I can hear a ghost, and the ghost is there with like a sort of a telephone book going, "Oh God, you look, li- you live at this address." And <laughs> or in mine, it's the ghosts in the future who are just looking stuff up on the internet. <laughs> So the oh, psychic wow. is going in contact with people from the future And the people from the future are going oh, oh we've got to find out what this person did and stuff Which I thought was a funny idea And sort of combined that with uh, spontaneous human combustion Which I mean it was, it was great fun I mean the, all their stories have been glorious Because they're just fantastic performers and lovely people
0: is that one of the things with the Jago and Lightfoot's, then? Do you kind of go back and pick up on some of the sort of the notions of the age, some of the popular things that were around at the time, and say, right, let's use that and make a story around that?
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think, uh... Well, I've sort of gone with them, really, uh is uh, with the Theatre of Dreams, I've got a list in front of me, this is really helpful. Uh, we is, both um, have. <laughs> is, uh, I was reading lots of Philip K. Dick at the time, stories, you know, about um, realities, um, inside realities, sort of yeah, yeah. Russian doll type situations. And I was going, okay, if you're going to do tell that sort of story, which is very sort of science fiction-y, in a 19th century setting, how would you do it? And it'd be like, okay, you'd be in a theatre on stage where, the show was within a show and you'd think you'd left the theater but actually you were still on stage um so that's where that story worked out it was trying to do a sort of a hard science fiction story but with all the trappings of a nineteenth century story um and uh skeleton key was um inspired by reading about lost villages um you known villages that have been Swept away by falling cliffs, or mm. they were used um in the World War Two as sort of um for training purposes and stuff. All these sort of little ghost villages that are dotted around Britain, um, so that's where that came from. And the monstrous menagerie was just a, the idea of I wanting to write about Conan Doyle <laughs> and dinosaurs.
0: Ah, oh, brilliant! <laughs> you
1: know that that whole <clears throat> the whole Sherlock Holmes dinosaur thing.
0: <laughs> it gives you a chance actually to sort of. Just kick back and say, right, this is what I want to write. And yeah, I just mean, have fun.
1: That was the only occasion where I've sort of come, to, gone to Justin and gone, uh, I've got, actually got an idea for a Jacob and Life. Could I do that instead of what you want me to do?
0: <laughs> and he said yeah. yes.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's still fitted in with their plan. But um, sometimes Justin will have a, a title uh, or I think... um. The Spirit Trap was his title, um, because I wanted to call it The Table Tappers. And stuff. So, and The Age of Revolution. No, that was mine. No, they're, they're all on my titles.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, uh,
1: yeah, and um, but yeah, they, they they're sort of interesting because they're they're not really steampunk, but they are sort of stuff where you're writing it in a nineteen nineteenth century literary way. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to. Yeah, yeah. There's couple more big finish I want to ask you about, though, before we finish. One of those is pretty sad, and that's the anti-matter. I mean, obviously, you would never have known at the time. I don't suppose that Mary Tam was ill.
1: No, I didn't know. Um, the only thing... I mean, that... Um, for some of those audios, here, stuff was recorded separately, so... But that just happens anyway sometimes because of logistics. The actors aren't available on certain dates. So you don't think anything by it. Um, So for that story, I'd written them having separate adventures anyway. Mm. So it meant that um, all of the Doctor's adventures were recorded in one studio and Mary Tam's adventures were recorded in another studio. And I wasn't there for Mary Tam's bits, so... um, but I had no idea, and but if I had, if I'd known, would I would I've written it differently? No, not at all. I mean, I was I'm delighted that I got feedback from her that she loved doing it, and she thought it was very witty. And
0: oh, it's a lovely story, yeah, and it fits right in with the theme of the time. It's a great companion piece to things like, well, the City of Death. It feels. You know, I mean obviously City of Death is the second romana, but you know what I mean? It's got that Douglas Adamsy feel to it.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's because Douglas Adams was very influenced by P. G. Woodhouse. Mm. Um, because the um uh, uh the Antimatter is very uh, P. G. Woodhouse, particularly yeah, the yeah. and Worcester stories. Um I'm I'm very, very proud of what I did there because there's some bits in there where you wouldn't you wouldn't tell, I think. You, would, you wouldn't You would tell whether it was P.G. Woodhouse or me, you know. I think I pastiched him pretty well. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: And it feels perfect for that sort of period of Doctor Who, that sort of season 16, season 17, where, you know, the TARDIS pretty much could land anywhere. You never know what to expect, really.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly around that time, uh, with Anthony Reid the script editor the the TARDIS would land in different genres. So, different
0: genres of book as well, Exactly. So you've got yeah. a, the
1: TARDIS lands in The Prisoner of Zender. Mm. You know, um or it it lands in Bulldog Drummond or, you know um so the idea that the TARDIS would land in a PG Woodhouse type situation is does kind of fit, I think, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is an absolutely lovely play that one. The other thing, oh I were you about to say something else? Sorry.
1: Well, no, I was just, I was just. The other thing that I'm delighted with is that when I went, I think that was the second time I'd been to recordings with Tom Baker there, because I'd done Valley of Death, and but with that one, I not only not only did he read the script, he just sort of came in and went, "I've got notes," <laughs> and <laughs> normally it's one or two, but he had about thirty lines of things, and it wasn't like um. It was just, oh, I thought of an extra joke to put in there. And it was like, he's really engaged with this story. He's sort of adding lots and lots of funny bits. So I'm not going to tell you which bits, but Tom Baker's. But uh, it was just wonderful to go, oh, he's he's put his bits in it. That's Because that, that's what you want as a fan. You want to you want it to yeah, be like it was yeah. in the 70s where Tom would rewrite scripts, you know, with City of Death. So I have no objection to him adding bits and bobs.
0: Well, you've just mentioned the other thing I was going to ask you about because all these stories that you've written and then smack bang in the middle of them all, in the middle of this big list we've both got in front of us, <laughs> is the Valley of Death. And, of course, the Guardians of Prophecy. But I think, more interestingly, the Valley of Death, that's the... <laughs> well, that is the story that Philip Hinchcliffe had chiefly in mind for what his season 15 would be.
1: Yeah, um, I think... I don't know about that, I think, because he submitted it um to Douglas Adams in 1988.
0: Oh, did he? Oh, I've got it wrong in my head. I'm thinking it's the... Um... Or well, yes, yeah, I mean, it still might be. It no, the... no, he, he,
1: said, he said in interviews that um, it's one of the ideas he had for the next... If he'd stayed on right. for a year. That's um, it, yeah. But it was then, the synopsis I was working from, which I think was three pages, um, was submitted to Douglas Adams in 978 as an idea for the show and Douglas Adams just wrote on it Close Encounters of the Expensive Kind <laughs> yeah well <laughs> um, it's kind of
0: a, almost a bit Raiders of the Lost Ark if I remember rightly
1: it is I mean it's I think he's sort of channelling King Solomon's Minds mm. and H. Rider Haggard and stuff yeah there's, yeah there's sort of pastiches of things going on there but it does preempt things like Raiders of the Lost Ark very much so um in the second half, kind of preempts a series called V, which did a oh yes, of a course, sort of yeah, a, or Independence Day, that whole thing of a giant spaceship above a capital city. Um, and they I didn't mean, think it,
0: they'd be able to do this.
1: It, it, it was an odd one because the synopsis, to put it delicately, was kind of bonkers. <laughs> it mm. was, it was, you know, it was a, a a train of thought sort of thing. It wasn't. Um, with oh, God, with sure, God's yeah. prophecy, that was kind of worked out and kind of detailed, whereas Valley of Death is a kind of spitballing ideas. So, one of my jobs was to sort of impose some structure and some logic onto it, um, but it was still bonkers. <laughs> it was, it's still a story which I would never have come up with. I would never have gone to the jungle and had primitive tribes, you know, which was right on the very edge of what. What I would call political political effect.
0: Oh right, um, and right having John, very, John Dorn
1: in the studio going um bongo um bongos. Oh wow, kind kind of right at the edge of. Oh <laughs> dear, you
0: know. Was it really weird though working from three pages by Philip Hinchcliffe Did you feel some kind of reverence towards what he'd done, or did you just think, yeah, you can see why Robert Holmes was doing the writing. uh
1: I can certainly see why Douglas Adams rejected it because it would have been very expensive mm. or, or impractical to do given that the Doctor Who's budget had been cut by, um, by that by that time from what it was with Philip Hinchcliffe. But you can sort of see how it would have done. It would have turned it out a bit like um, the android invasion or the hand of fear. It was one, yeah. of, those, one of those stories where um, which I really love the fact that episode one is telling one story and episode four is telling something completely unrelated. Yeah, yeah. You know, and part one of um, The Hand of Fear was about a spooky hand in a quarry. And part four is we're on an alien planet going down a corridor solving puzzles. It was completely unrelated.
0: There was um, quite a lot of that during the Tom Baker period, wasn't yeah, there?
1: Yeah, but I like, I love the fact that it just goes off and does something different. Um, but it would have been impractical to do at the time, I think. Um I don't know about reverence with the idea it's what you're just sort of trying to do is go, okay, if they'd gone and made that, it made it in that era, how would it have turned out right I, mean, I think with guardians of prophecy, I had a lot more to go on um which
0: which season was guardians of prophecy aimed towards? I don't know much about that one.
1: It was submitted on spec, I think by well it's always difficult to work out whether something was done on spec or not in mm. that time because Johnny Byrne would have had a meeting with Eric Sayward or Jonathan yeah. Turner and would have been said, do you fancy writing something? So he sent in, you know, 20 pages. I mean, you wouldn't oh, write... Really? Wow. Yeah, he wouldn't have written this on just on spec, he, 20 pages. Yeah, uh, He'd have written if he'd had a meeting. Um, but then it went to j or Eric Sayward, whoever it was who hadn't asked for it. <laughs> and, yeah. was, and they turned it down. Um, so this would have been around... Uh, Colin Age Baker's three, first maybe? or second year. Oh
0: right, okay, 85, yeah.
1: it would have been. Perhaps. It was written for Colin Baker and Perry. Mm. So, it would have been around then. Um but it was never taken any further. Um but he nevertheless Johnny Byrne had certainly worked out episode 1 in great deal of detail. So, when I was adapting that, um I was writing the dialogue, but in terms of the story it was very very close to what he'd done. Mm. And even in his synopsis, he had bits of dialogue or or certainly colourful lines that I could turn into dialogue. Yeah. Um, But gradually as it went along it became less and less detailed. So by part four you'd have characters getting completely forgotten and you'd have him saying this sort of happens but I don't know which room it happens in. So all the sort of plotting for part four came to me. And also by that stage there wasn't really enough material to fill an episode. Yeah. So I m- went into the the idea of Malador, a creature who's a person who's consciously made himself amoral, who's deliberately switched off his conscience, like it's a like a, like an app, like he's like yeah. he's um, like he's switched off an app in his brain. He's no conscience, and why he would do that, and the the ideas behind that. So there were th- there were bits in it which I sort of developed. Um, which was, I mean, I, I adored it. I, um, uh, there's a bit at the beginning where a character calls, goes, you credulous fool, and they throw him <laughs> into the labyrinth, and he goes, no, not the labyrinth. And you go, "That that is terrible writing. <laughs> but um, that is me writing authentically, you know, authentically, <laughs> what it would have been like in
0: 1986.
1: Yeah. yeah um, so, yes, uh, yeah, it, uh, and you just you just go with it in that situation.
0: So one final question On Big Finish One that you might think You might have escaped from Not having made it onto the Survivors podcast But I asked all three of those chaps So you're not going to escape it Johnny What was your favourite Of your own Big Finish stories Ooh, (laughs) Uh, I think um... (sighs) Well perhaps the one you're proudest of The one you think is a more of an achievement, perhaps.
1: Okay, I'm looking at a list. Can I choose two? Yes, of course.
0: (laughs) Of course you can.
1: Okay, I'm going to choose Max Warp because that was the first one I'd done after I came back. And And that
0: was straight for the radio, wasn't it? Uh, It was. They got got some money
1: from Radio 4 hmm. Extra or Radio 7 as it was then. Uh, So the budget was a bit bigger in terms of cast. Did you know it
0: was going to be on the radio when you were writing it?
1: I honestly can't remember. Um, Uh. I think when I did the later Paul McGann's we knew they were going to be on the radio, but that one Mm. I don't know, I can't remember. Uh, Because I'd have thought
0: that might have affected, not necessarily it might have made you think to yourself, oh, I've got to do better because it's on the radio, because of course you want to do it as well as you can anyway, but it might have affected some of the choices you made when you were writing perhaps.
1: Uh, no, I don't think that came up at all. I think a lot of it was me thinking, oh, I've been asked back by Big Finish to do an audio. I'd better do a good job right. so that they asked me to do some more. Um, you know, I'd better not do another flip-flop. Yeah. Uh, and so the fact that it led on to so much work um, is part of why I'm so affectionate. But it does make me laugh listening to it. I think it's, I'm so proud of how much, how funny it is! You can sort of tell that I'd spent five years writing comedy scripts mm. when I wrote that. I was sort of very in a comedy frame of mind, and it has a fantastic cast. So, I, I absolutely adore, love that one. I'm very proud of that one. I do like them all. I do have. I could say <laughs> I'm proud of all of them in so many different ways. Um, uh, but the other one I sort of that turned out exceptionally well is Protect and Survive. I would sort of show that to people as an example of my writing at its best, or you know because um particularly the end of episode one i I'd written it and I'd been quite scared writing and writing something about something which terrifies me, you know I was taking my own worst nightmare um as something that's haunted me ever since you know I was. Eight years old, or whatever, and writing into a Doctor Who story, and going, This is what I find most terrifying in all the world. Um, and then I listened to it back with the cast and Kendra direction and the sound design, and I was terrified listening to it and going, Oh my god, wow! And, you know, I thought this was like, um, was, was, at um, say, eight in a sort of scary state scale, but now I'm finding this ten, you know, this is sort of ten scary. Um, so. I'd, I'd nominate that because that just was extremely well, came out so well. It was, and it makes me look good as a writer, which um, is always nice. <laughs> of course. But I could kind of say think that about things about like, all of them, <laughs> why they're my favourite one. So, yeah, if you ask me tomorrow, it'll be a different two.
0: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? When you write, you work hard to achieve something. And when you do achieve it, of course, you're going to be happy with what you've managed. Because. Like any other job, it is a job, and you have to have job satisfaction in order to want to keep doing it, don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's always one of the best bits is to get the um the CD or the download and to listen back to it. Um, I I I don't listen to them properly. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bad listener because I, I go through and listen to the cliffhangers first,
0: and then I listen. To oh, them. really? <laughs> well, yeah, they're the
1: best bits. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um. Uh, I do that with other people. So I go. I want. I listen to the cliffhangers first, and then I listen to the whole thing. So I, I have no respect for structure or secrets or spoilers. Um, but um, because I'm I'm one of those people who reflect to the back of a book and find out who did it. I'm
0: terrible. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely outrageous.
1: But yeah. Um, one last thing. It, then it is. It is always very gratifying to hear the final thing. I don't think there's any of them which have turned out bad in terms of other people's work. There's a few where I don't think I wrote them particularly well, but in terms of what they did with them, are always fantastic.
0: Well, one last thing then. A couple of BBC um, Eighth Doctor books. Crikey, I'm going backwards in time myself. A couple of BBC books from the Matt Smith era, and one is Touched by an Angel. Yep. Well, uh, to do the weeping <laughs> angels—that sounded like I was guilty of it. Oh. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, to do the weeping angels in a book doesn't strike me as a particularly easy thing to do. No, I mean it's—it's it's,
1: they are tricky. I mean, I think they're probably tricky to do on television, anyway, but um, mm. because they are a menace, you know, they don't um, move; <laughs> they don't—they—they um, they are um, they, basically you are telling a ghost story. You are telling, and a ghost story isn't. Is not about um something solid that comes in and grabs you. It's they're the, the very in, it's the shape in the sort of the window yeah. at night and stuff. It's that sort of They're
0: thing. a very visual threat, aren't they?
1: Yes. That's that's which is fine actually in a book because you in a book you are creating the visuals in the reader's imagination. They would be very, very difficult to do on audio. You know, that would be a real challenge. Um
0: Oh, I mean, God, <laughs> that, that, I should imagine that'd be just about impossible. Uh, so that's your next task, Mr. Yeah, Morris. Yeah, well, yeah, who,
1: who knows? But um, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has been established later on that they can rip people's vocal cords out and talk. But um, So you'd you'd find ways of making them sinister on audio. But mm. uh, in a book, it was tricky um, because, I mean, I, I think, you don't want to use them too much, so every time you ration their appearances, and each time they appear, they appear it has to be a kind of a shocking visual moment. Whether it's them appearing on um on the TV screens in a department store, or um in a in a student nightclub when the lights are strobing, so because the lights are strobing, you can see them sort of flickering movement, um or you know on the on the roof of a train. Clinging to the roof and stuff it's, so it's all those sort of oh you didn't expect to see them there and there they are. That's <laughs> that's the sort of thrill of um, of doing them. It's it's kind of like the Woman in Black, you know the the film where it's oh she pops up there. You didn't expect to find her there, <laughs> you know. And Daniel Radcliffe looks in the toilet. Oh, she's in the toilet. Didn't expect. It's, <laughs> it's kind of like that really. But I mean, it's any any ghost story. It's it's the shock of um then they appear where you least expect them. And they appear in, a, in an unexpected way. Um, so that was the trick I was trying to do with The Weeping Angels and that, yeah.
0: And how did you find writing for Matt Smith?
1: Well, by that stage I'd done quite a few comic strips. Um, right, so, yeah. And writing the first comic strips was was hard because I only had a glance at a script to go on. Um you know, I didn't even have a copy of the script. I had glanced at the script, but I didn't actually have a copy of it. Um, but by the time of um, Touch Upon Angel, I'd seen his first year, so that was kind of fairly straightforward of writing lines that, again, with like a comic strip, you're trying to create his voice and his delivery style within the dialogue itself. Because, you know, if you're writing a TV script and you write a Matt Smith line and it's not particularly Matt Smithy, it doesn't really matter because... When he says yeah. it, he'll make it Matt Smithy. Whereas in a book, you're trying to create that performance a little bit.
0: And you. The thing about writing novels as well is that as you write, you have to give perspective in the text from one of the characters. Every, Pretty much every scene you write, you have to see that scene from the perspective of one of the characters. When you're writing Doctor Who. One of the things that's always best avoided, so they say, is to give a scene from the doctor's perspective. But I mean there are occasions when you obviously have to. Was it difficult doing that with Matt Smith? Or did uh, you indeed do that?
1: I don't think I did. I think because um, even when I'm you're writing I was writing a BBC books back in the the you know, Festival of Death and stuff, it was on the writer's guidelines telling you not to do that. Yeah. Uh I think it might have been even the Virgin books when they were doing their guidelines saying, because it's all written in what's called third person limited. Yeah. Um, and you don't really go on get inside the doctor's mind because the doctor is clever and alien and thinks much faster than anyone could possibly understand. And so whenever on the TV show, you know, they did it with Patrick Trout and you hear the doctor's thoughts, you always go, oh, he's, he's thinking quite boring stuff. You know, I'd imagine mm. him thinking much more weird stuff than that. Um, so, you, you don't really go... and you, you have other characters. I had um, David Whittaker and stuff, so he was a good viewpoint character to use, so... And also part of the audio... I'm sorry, thing. David so, Whittaker. Um, was he called David Whittaker? I can't remember now. <laughs> sorry, okay. I, I he was certainly called Whittaker. Um, uh, he was named after David Whittaker. Uh, yeah. But um, with audio, you're never writing scenes with only one person. And with a book, you're, you've got a character you can't use as a viewpoint character. You would never You're try to avoid having scenes with him in on his own. Um, I think there might have been one or two, but generally, when you do that, you just go into um, third person omniscience rather than limiting mm. it to the doctor. <laughs> so there you
0: go <laughs> well, that's the my my sort of technical li- aspect of that yeah well my listeners will be learning all sorts of new things listening to this Um, Jonathan I've got a little email I just wanted to read on the podcast before we leave do you mind if I just quickly do that it's from Doc Hume, who was actually on last week's podcast And at one point during last week's podcast, he told everybody he was about to tell us something and then forgot to tell us it. So he's written in an email to explain what it was that he was going to say. Hope you don't mind. It'll only be about a minute. Go for it. (laughs) He says, I've just listened back to the podcast and heard that I said that later in the podcast, I'd explain why Father's Day is far more necessary to the series arc than the long game and then forgot to. Because it's the events of the fa- of Father's Day which lead to Rose being able to open up the TARDIS console in parting of the ways, Rose tells Jackie that the Doctor took her back to be with her dad as he was dying, and that partly reconciles Jackie to the Doctor and partly reconciles her to Pete. So she goes off and gets a whacking great truck to force open the console. And that's something that Dog Hoon was going to tell us all about last week. And I've just done it in approximately an eighth of the time it would have taken him. So I think the <laughs> listeners have gotten away with a lucky escape there. Jonathan, it was lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much.
1: So I, um, I, I hope to come back one day because um, I've got more stuff in the pipeline,
0: as the <laughs> expression goes. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah, um, definitely.
1: In particular, I've got something which is going to be announced in... Uh, the next Doctor Magazine, which will blow people's minds. It, it sort of blew, it blew my mind when I was doing it. So hopefully, people will find out and go bloody hell. So that's to look forward to.
0: Oh my God! You cannot say that <laughs> without giving at least a hint.
1: I, ca- I can't give a hint, but, it's, <gasps> some, um, but it's, it's something people would never expect to happen. I imagine so. Let's let's.
0: Okay, I could just
1: just say expect the unexpected but then I'd sound like a wind up merchant so uh, (laughs) 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 uh, I would would just say um, expect the but it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be marvellous I think is what I was saying that's um, that's almost a clue okay
0: (laughs) right we'd better wrap up so you can tell me in private what it is Um, I was JR we'll speak again soon hey (laughs) You don't have to tell me, I'll get it in the magazine, but now I've left the listeners thinking I know.